you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now on Fast, President Xi's tightening vice grip, sending shockwaves through markets here and in China. Mainland names like Pinduoduo cratering, while U.S. brands with big exposure like Starbucks and Tesla falling too. Is conflict now replacing capitalism in the fracturing relationship between the U.S. and Beijing? Plus, pain, Meta's painful pivot, all the spending and hiring around the metaverse has pushed the stock down over 60% this year. Now, one big investor is saying to Mark Zuckerberg, enough. Is he right? And later, building a foundation, one of our traders making the case that home builders might be ready to weather the coming economic storm better than you'd expect. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market site. On the desk tonight, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and Jeff Mills. And we start off with the China plunge heard round the world. The K-Web Chinese internet ETF dropping more than 13% to an all-time low, putting in its worst day since it started trading nine years ago. It is now down 80% from the record high hit just last year. The China large-cap ETF, the FXI, dropped over 9%, is on pace for its worst month since September 2011. Among the biggest losers in the region, Pinduoduo, online recruiting company Kanjun and fintech firm 360 Digitech, tech stalwart Alibaba, dropping 12.5%, touching its lowest level since IPOing in 2014. But it wasn't just companies based in China that got hit. Starbucks, which counts China as its second biggest operating region, dropped more than 5%. Las Vegas Sands, down more than 10%. Yum China, down nearly 14%. All this after China's President Xi Jinping locked in an unprecedented third term in office. The wind sparking fears that his policies could hamper growth of private firms and make the country uninvestable. We've got live reaction now from our Eunice Yoon, who's on the ground in Beijing. Good early Tuesday morning, Eunice. Hi, Melissa. Well, President Xi, as you said, uh, one, uh, secured a third five-year term, so that much was expected. But the scale of his political victory has made him the most commanding leader since the regime's uh, founder, uh, Chairman Mao. At the end of the week-long Communist Party Congress, uh, President Xi revealed his leadership team. The elite group was packed with Xi's allies and supporters, which suggests that uh, President Xi is going to have a total control over the direction of China. Now, uh, that uh, essentially means that we're going to see a continuation of zero COVID controls, uh, state-led economic policies, as well as a more hostile stance towards the U.S. In fact, a state news agency, Xinhua, said that she personally uh, vetted the leadership team with one of the criteria as uh, a fitness to fight the West. Uh, uh, President Xi's dominance um, uh, seemed to result in um, a flex move against one of his uh, predecessors, uh, ex-president Hu Jintao, was very unceremoniously and abruptly removed from the Congress towards the end. And that has been sending a signal to many that uh, China has entered a new era where President Xi reigns supreme. Melissa? You mentioned uh, signaling a new era, Eunice, but the truth is not many people in China are even aware that Hu Jintao was escorted out in any fashion. Yeah, that's right. There are a lot of people who are aware, uh, but they speak about it only privately. Uh, it's been completely 
uh, vetted um, on social media. And uh, in terms of the actual reporting, the official media has not been talking about it at all. There was one state media reporter who tweeted, so in English to a foreign audience, that perhaps he had health issues. But there is some conversation going on. And one way that people are trying to talk about it publicly, or at least show their sympathy, is that they're posting a photo of his empty chair. Eunice, thank you. Eunice Yoon in Beijing. Uh, there are a lot of levels to this in terms of the fears, the impact on U.S. stocks, on, on stocks in China, on the economy here. One is a zero-COVID zero policy. The number two guy in the Politburo was in charge of the two-month lockdown in Shanghai. He's not backing away. He's going to be supporting this policy for sure. Uh, and then also the crackdown on the tech sector and entrepreneurs and capitalism at large in China. First of all, welcome back. It's great to have you back. Eunice says amazing. It's four in the morning and she's still working. Good for her. In terms of the stock market, yeah, I mean, this to me is extraordinarily bearish for what's going on here. Now, full disclosure, I remain bullish in the short term. We talked about that a week and a half ago, how this situation set up the same way it did back in the middle of June when the market proceeded rally almost 19 percent into the middle of August. I think we're up 8% since the lows. I think we have another 6 7%. Then you sell it again, and I think that will happen post-election. But in terms of this story specifically, yeah, it has far ramifications, far-reaching ramifications. However, quickly, on a trade, and we talked about this, what's that holiday around the 4th of July here in the United States? Oh, it's called 4th of July. It's odd that they call it that. But anyway, you go back and look what happened to Alibaba around the 4th of July. Stock rallied almost 50%. We actually talked about it leading up to it. I think you have another situation where it's setting up for a trade. Traded five times normal volume today, made a low we haven't seen in six years, to your earlier point. I think you can trade Baba from the long side into earnings next week, Melms. So I thought there was a lot to hate about what came out, right? I think the expectations were going to, that it was going to be bad. And right. I think it, it sort of exceeded those expectations. I mean, you've got so many levels. You've got China's economy just on its own, right? Forgetting all the noise around it, right? This, this is a very different China than the high growth days that we're used to. So that's one. Then you've got all the ramifications of, you know, him being in total control now, him being very, playing really hardball against the U.S. We haven't really seen that as I think as as it's as tough as it's going to be, we have, we're, we're at the beginning of that. So there's that. And then there's just the OK, if anyone were hopeful that maybe it would be different, there's that selling as well. So you put all that together for me in the short term, it does make China uninvestable. I know if Tim were here, he would say think you make the most money when things go from just from terrible to just really bad. We're in terrible right now. Yeah. I would agree with him there. I don't know that we're yet ready for really bad. For a trade, though, Dan. Yeah. I, I mean, when we talk, we get asked this question all the time. It's like, what is capitulation? What are the kind of components and the inputs of capitulation? I think you have an event like this. We all expected, like you just said, it was not going to be great news. And then you have this sort of market reaction to it. That sort of gap. I was looking at the FXI. That's the iShares large cap China ETF. These are Hong Kong listed names in that ETF. Alibaba, the name the guy just mentioned, is one of the top holdings, Tencent. Baidu, Medawan, I mean, like big names, you know. You can buy that thing down 35, 40% on the year, down a lot more from its all-time highs. I, I took a shot right on the close here. I'm starting to pick at that, looking at calls out in December. I mean, the calls that I bought, the December 22s, they're about 4.5% the price of the ETF. You think about how this thing is moving around and how much is down. Again, I think it's probably uninvestable long-term, but I think right. both of you guys are saying it's tradable right here. Well, that's a really good risk yeah. we were talking about that in the green room, right? Yeah. One day of euphoria, which yeah. could absolutely happen, and that's, a, that's an interesting 
interesting trade. And you know exactly what you're going to lose. You don't need to worry about, ah, do I sell it now? I'm down. Right. right. Jeff? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's still a massive economy with some growth potential there, but we've been thinking about investing in emerging markets differently just because a lot of people will go out and buy the ETF, EEM, for example, and, and what do you get? You get a 50% slug of, of passive China exposure, and I don't know that's what you want right now. I think you have to be a little bit more selective. I think you have to have managers that really know the landscape there and can pick the companies that are maybe a little bit less vulnerable to some of the stuff we're talking about here. But you know, we keep talking about the potential for S&P 500 earnings expectations to come down. So for multinationals, the strong dollar has been bad. This is bad. 7% of S&P 500 earnings come from China. So you know, we talked about it, the likes of Starbucks, Nike, Apple, Qualcomm, semis. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about casinos in the past. You know, do you want to own something like Win, which is really a binary play on China reopening? Or would you rather own something like an MGM? I think you have to be thoughtful and understand where the revenue exposure is coming from in this environment and really going forward, because I don't think this is going to change. Um, you know, the last thing I'll say is, you know, everybody's very focused on K-Web for obvious reasons. Um, it's very interesting if you look at the way it's been trading. You know, it's been trading with high beta. Of course, those companies have specific issues. But if you look at the correlation, K-Web, ARC, for example, it's 0.75. So this is trading with the high beta trade of this market. You know, ARC's correlation with the S&P 500 is like 0.4. So I think you have... These issues that are going to weigh on those stocks, plus the idea that investors are just going to be risk averse here going forward. That's how those stocks have traded. Of course, you could you could trade it for a pop. I think that's very possible. But thinking out, you know, a couple of quarters, um, it's it's a difficult place to be right now. Yeah. Well, you know, Jeff, the point that you make, I think, is really interesting. U.S. multinationals that are relying on China for growth, that's going to be hard to the point about what Karen's saying politically. I don't think you want to be there. I don't think that's the exposure you want. If you look at the FXI, you look at the names that are listed there, it's primarily domestically focused there, right? Especially on the internet names. And if you think about what she has already done to these names and the people that run these companies, probably most of the worst is over, in my opinion. And then if you do have a Chinese economy that does bounce at some point, if COVID does go away, those stocks are going to benefit the most. And you talk about that correlation to something like ARC. I'd rather be in an FXI where 40% Uh, the weight of it are five domestically focused internet names that have the potential just to rip without the idiosyncratic risk that one of them goes to zero. But as we enter the thick of earnings season, I mean, to get to the 7% of S&P 500 earnings that come from China or the China region, how should we think about those? And, and, And do, for certain companies, does that percentage go to half? Does it go to zero? Because it depends on what sector you're in. And if there is a Chinese local company competing with that U.S. company, there might be favoritism towards the Chinese company. And so it might be even more difficult for that U.S. company to fare. I don't know how to, I'm throwing this out there because these are things that we are all grappling with as we are learning about these changes here. I wonder what company, listen, I've thought for a while that Apple has to have a giant bullseye on their collective back, given everything we've been talking about for the last 10 minutes or so. That clearly hasn't come to fruition, but you wonder now that his power has been galvanized for the next five years, if not longer. I mean, at some point, does Apple come into play? Not yet, and we'll see what happens with their earnings this week, but it's certainly something to talk about. But we mention all the time, and if Tim were here, he'd say the same thing. I mean, Starbucks, Nike to a certain extent. I mean, all these companies, I mean, seemingly have the crosshairs on them. Again, I'll say this, and it's important. We're, what we're talking about at the top of the show are trading opportunities. I mean, we've said for years now, effectively, that it's very hard to invest in China, but the trading opportunities around these individual names have been fantastic. 
Well, I think we, we've talked about this a lot, Starbucks and Nike yeah. and whatever. So they used to have a growth multiple embedded in them for China, right? Once premium. Premium, exactly. Yeah. So there was the premium for that, and then obviously COVID happened, and then there was, okay, well, for now, everything's terrible, but it will reopen. That's that's not quite the way it is, actually. So there's there's that. And so now it should have a discount. I think that China exposure should have a discount. I agree with you. I, I'm nervous for Apple. If there were I mean, if you think of an iconic brand mm -hmm. that really if you want to send a message to the United States, right, well, we mean business now, there is no better target than Apple. So right. I'm nervous about that one. Well, let's bring in economist uh, Stephen Roach. He's the former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia, is now a Yale University senior fellow. He's also the author of the new soon-to-be-released books, uh, Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives. Stephen, it's always great to speak with you. Um, I don't want to make you opine on a specific company, but should a company, I mean, in, in thinking about what has gone on in China and thinking about what is going to be, do you think a company like an Apple should be worried? Should big, iconic U.S. companies be afraid for their businesses in China for, you know, retaliation reasons, for COVID lockdown reasons, all of these different things that we've been talking about? Retaliation is certainly worth uh, thinking about, uh, Melissa, especially since the uh, the Biden administration um, a couple of weeks ago announced these extraordinarily draconian measures against um, uh, U.S. exports going to boost Chinese technology. And China has retaliated tit for tat on virtually everything we've done uh, since uh, 2018. And, you know, I wouldn't rule out uh, significant retaliation from this. But, you know, I, I just want to add one thing to, you know, the, the insights that you and your group are offering uh, along with Eunice. Um, I want you just to think about one name, not Xi Jinping, but a, a gentleman by the name of Wang Huning, H-U-N-I-N-G. He was reappointed as one of the top seven standing committee members of the Politburo. Why do I focus on him? He's the guy that created the ideological thrust of uh, Xi Jinping thought, the Chinese dream, and he's written the book on China's view of a declining America, which has urged the Chinese leadership uh, to uh, embrace the notion of conflict uh, with uh, the United States. He's 67 years old. He was rumored to be retiring. He, was, he didn't retire. He was elevated. He's most likely to become either the chairman of the National People's Congress or the chairman of the consultative uh, political group in, in China. He's a big deal in terms of driving what Xi Jinping is all about. He's the guy behind the scenes that has given uh, uh, the U.S. so many problems. And, and he was just promoted. And very few people are uh, focusing on that right now. Mr. Roach, uh, you know, one of the things I've said and I've been concerned about is as Americans, we look at things through our lens, right? But world's a much different place. And if your opponent is willing to lose battles to win wars and doesn't have a five-minute timeline, but a 50-year timeline, that's a very difficult opponent to beat. That is, th that is the Chinese. Can you speak to that? Because I think everything we've been seeing over the last couple of years speaks to exactly that, willing to lose battles but playing the long game. Yeah, their, their concept of strategy is very, very different. Uh, their perspective is different. Xi Jinping has laid out uh, objectives to hit great power status by 2049, which would be the 100th 
uh, anniversary of the founding of uh, the PRC. Uh, and, you know, they've, they've taken a lot of strategic actions in terms of uh, their military, the power consolidation uh, politically, uh, and the shift back to um, uh, a state control uh, to help um, uh, implement that strategy. So, you know, we're, we, we think very myopically. We do things uh, short term, uh, and it's a, a, a real disconnect in terms of uh, us against them with these two different strategic perspectives. How should uh, U.S. companies think about retaliation? Uh, or how should the United States think about retaliation in, in general? Um, could it be using the zero COVID policy to enact pain in, in I mean, parts of Guangzhou right now are, are shut down <laughs> and that could really cause a problem because that's a factory center of China. Um, or, or should it be measures like the U.S. is taking when it comes to chips, um, where it's a more formalized sort of uh, act by China? Look, Melissa, we, we fired a big shot here um, yeah. and this was um, you, you could argue, um, you know, uh, an initiative that we took. And so the next move here is not retaliation from us, but retaliation from China. And I think we need to take those risks very, very seriously. And I don't think China's going to do anything deliberately to hurt its own system. Uh, it will take actions that will be directed uh, at the United States. It could be, you know, anything from uh, you know, rare earths, which we need uh, for a lot of our own uh, products here, to a number of other actions that uh, we are vulnerable in. But, you know, I, I would, they, they've obviously had their hands full in dealing with this Congress over the past week, and we have yet to fully see what they're going to do in response. But make no mistake, they're, they're going to definitely do something uh, in response to these export sanctions on uh, 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 aimed at strangling uh, their advanced technologies. Mr. Rich, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. You talked about this big shot across the bow the Biden administration made. Do you think they did the right thing? Well, uh, that's that's a, 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 a tough question, Karen. I mean, these are draconian measures, and for them to have um, done what they did. Uh, you have to presume that they have deep intelligence that China is utilizing uh, this technology uh, not just for uh, aggressive uh, military actions such as building uh, supersonic missiles, but also to undermine uh, American technology, which we view as being um, uh, emblematic of our future, the, the prosperity uh, of our nation. I would have to say the evidence there is a lot sketchier than uh, Washington uh, leads you to believe. So we've gone very far uh, uh, over the bow here on uh, on this one. And let's just hope that we have the evidence to uh, validate uh, these actions, because these are extraordinarily uh, tough uh, measures aimed at truly at strangling Chinese technology. How do you, um, or, or if you were at Morgan Stanley still, Stephen, and you were advising a company whose time frame was five years, which is how long she has solidified his power, you know, his term, um, how should a company view the growth trajectory over these next five years? Well, look, I think, you know, China will, will grow, Melissa, but I think, um, you know, if we're talking about, uh, you know, companies assessing uh, 
their risks of China exposure, uh, they better be working pretty hard on plan B here because no one knows, again, how China is going to uh, play these uh, types of actions uh, down the road. And just to presume that it's going to you know, blow over now that the party Congress is behind us and we'll go back to uh, the way it used to be, whatever that was, uh, I think that is um, uh, being a little bit uh, too blasé about potential risk. We are in a serious conflict. We've gone in, in five years, we've gone from a trade war to a full-blown tech war to the early stages of a cold war. And so I, I wrote this book called Accidental Conflict with this in mind. When, you, when you're on this path of conflict escalation, it doesn't take much of a spark to turn it into something far worse. And we got plenty of sparks right now. Just think back at what happened in the Taiwan Straits uh, in early August. So you know, we're at a point of, of danger, and mm -hmm. Xi Jinping, you know, filled with power, um, uh, and you know, with his buddy Wang Huning, uh, poised to still seize the, the opportunity to take on what they strongly believe is a declining America. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the risks of conflict cannot be dismissed. Yeah, very timely book, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining us. We do appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Always great to get his perspective, Stephen Roach of Yale. You better get a plan B in order. Uh, Jeff Mills, are there U.S. companies where you think, you know what, there is a plan B. Starbucks will have a plan B and Nike will have a plan B. And you know what, you, you look through this. Yeah, I mean, I think the good news here is that we didn't necessarily learn anything uh, over the party Congress period that we didn't know already, right? So I would think these companies, the Starbucks, the Apples, these companies that have exposure there, that have growth plans there, you know, there is a plan B in place. We did not have some watershed moment where all of a sudden these companies say, wow, oh my goodness, the landscape has shifted. I think it just solidifies what they already know. So I, I think that that's the very good news about all of this. Um, and maybe the last thing I'll say, just in terms of where there might be opportunity, uh, you know, heading into an economic slowdown, you might not think about small caps. I've mentioned small caps on the show before. But in this particular situation, uh, the lower percentage of revenues in China, you know, some of these things make these companies very attractive uh, at a period of the economic cycle where they might not usually be so. Yeah, and I'll just say this. I mean, think about, you know, we started with a trade war years ago. Um, that was the start of some of the inflationary pressures. We started thinking about reshoring jobs right. here. If wage inflation is one of the stickiest parts about it, and just think about, you know, a company like Apple is very different than a company like Starbucks in China. They rely on Chinese citizens for manufacturing, for cheap manufacturing. So they're already starting to think about what other places in Asia or in the Western Hemisphere where they can do that. That's just expensive here. And I can just go back to that first week of January 2019, Apple had one of its first negative pre-announcements for a quarter in, I think, over 10 years. And it was based on China and fears of a slowdown on China. So going back to what Guy is talking about, they've done a lot of really good things in a difficult environment managing throughout this entire pandemic. But I just would be shocked if we get to Thursday night and China is not a huge focus from both a manufacturing standpoint and a demand standpoint. Coming up, Dear Zuck, a big meta investor sounding off on the company and Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO, what he says meta needs to do to get its mojo back. Plus, a good prognosis in healthcare stocks. Some top names seeing some big gains today. So can the group stay strong? We'll dig into the names when Fast Money returns. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. 
For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. A major investor calling for some big changes at Meta as the company has seen shares drop more than 60% this year. Altimeter Capital CEO Brad Gerstner penning an open letter to Mark Zuckerberg and the board, urging the company to get focus and get fit, saying Meta has drifted into the land of excess. Too many people, too many ideas, and too little urgency. Meta set to report third quarter earnings on Thursday. Karen, what'd you think? Well, I liked seeing it. I agree with uh, almost everything in there. It's sort of interesting to me. I assume those two really do know each other, right? I guess. I don't know. It's just an assumption. And I'm wondering, did they have some back channel talk? And Mark was like, no, I have no interest in doing any of that. And so he felt compelled to put this in a a public forum. I don't know. I was just wondering about that. However, I do think the logic is very good that not just Meta, but many of these companies, it has been growth at all costs, and that was the right thing to do. And he cites, especially in an era of zero-cost dollars, why not do that? That makes sense. But now growth is slowing, and, you know, these are very fat companies, yeah. not just them, but we're seeing it across the board. We're seeing it with Microsoft. We're seeing it with, with uh, Alphabet. We're seeing it here. We, I, I like what he's saying. I mean, I think that at this multiple, it's kind of ridiculous, and if they can improve their earnings that much, seemingly so easily, why not do it? I mean, growth at all costs in this environment is not in vogue. No. <laughs> Investors do not want to see that. And what he wants them to do in part is to cut metaverse spending specifically in half but to $5 billion. Which is somewhat problematic year. when the future of your company is based on the metaverse, it would appear. Except given the that name. nobody knows what it exactly. is. Exactly. And, and, and listen, I'm not trying to be glib, but that's why the stock has more than been cut in half since its all-time high. And in trading at levels, Karen's point about multiple, it's probably trading, what, 12 and a half times next year's numbers. I'm probably off by a little bit, but it's close. Trading at two and a half times revenue. Dan can speak to that. So valuation is compelling. Problem is it's been compelling for the last 35 percent to right. the downside. So who knows what they're going to say. We're trading at levels we haven't seen since this time in 2018, and they've done nothing 
in my opinion, to indicate they're changing their tune anytime soon. Yeah, I just say this. I mean, I doubt that Brad's uh, friendly with him. Um, I don't think Mark well, probably anymore, has. For sure. Well, I don't. I just don't think he has friends that 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 like have those mm-hmm. sorts of opinions about the things that he's doing. A year ago, this was only a, almost a trillion dollar market cap company, and he decided to change the course of it based on things that he and his team were seeing. So in a way, this this stock was probably going to be cut in half no matter what if it still had the ticker FB on it and they were still just, you know, trudging, you know, along with their, I think, is that the right word? Whatever, you know what I mean? Trudging along with just the old blue page and Instagram and maybe talking about ways to kind of monetize WhatsApp. But I'll just say this. I think this stock is probably one gap away that could look like the snap sort of gap where you're going to bet against, you wouldn't buy that. You'd bet against a company that has a third of the population of the planet on their thing and they're making bets. They're investing tens of billions of dollars to figure out how to monetize them in the future. So to me, it seems kind of interesting. Let everybody get really negative on this thing. Let them guide down one more you time. Wait for that gap. Yeah, and, and then I think that you kind of just have to buy it, you know? All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Good health, good gains. Healthcare stocks leading the gains in today's rally. So which names are the right medicine for your portfolio? Plus, and speaking of the rally, today was up, up, and away for stocks. But is there something broken under the surface? The details ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Healthcare stocks posting the biggest gains amid today's rally. Pharma stocks like Pfizer, Merck, and Lilly all in the green. Insurance stocks also jumping. United Health, Cigna, Humana all higher. Jeff, you like these moves. Yeah, there's some really interesting setups here. It's really been that way all year. But I, I do think it's interesting. It's not really a rising tide lifts all boats scenario. Like I look at a name like Pfizer. Yes, it was up today. But to me, it looks like it's rolling over, whereas you have Merck making new highs. So I think some of these company-specific drivers are very important in this market, even for a more defensive space like healthcare. Like with Merck, for example, you had that recent good news on the phase three cardiovascular drug trial. It was related to one of their recent acquisitions. So it kind of uh, justifies that strategy. It diversifies them away from Keytruda. So there's good fundamental things going on within companies, within a sector that I think investors are interested in. So you have profitability, margins, cash flow. It's a type of characteristics I think you're going to continue to want in this market. I think this space has been a great place to hide out. I mean, we have reasonable valuations, right? And there is still growth. And you have dividends. And I think Merck, Guy, I'd be interested to hear your opinion, seems to be gravitationally headed towards 100 or higher. That's one of those things. Dan, talk, I think TRB has made that point. The, the reform, reform broker. broker. Both <laughs> See the way I pause? I'll let you both do that. That's pretty good. But we didn't even rehearse that. He mentioned this. Dan talks about this all the time. A $93 stock makes its way to 100 for whatever reason. I know that sounds dumb because I said it, but it happens to be true. And now Merck is at levels where it probably will reach triple digits. Say this very quietly. Shh. Look at Amgen, Mel. 
new all-time high today, a name we've talked about for years on valuation, still reasonable, into earnings, I believe, November 4th. That makes sense. And Eli Lilly, now analysts seem to be coming around to the fact that Eli Lilly's the best big cap pharma name out there. So, yes, this space is still investable at these levels. And I'm going to say this. That say work it. chart, and Jim Cramer says it all the time, there's always a bull market somewhere. We are in a nasty mm. bear market. That thing is like the best-looking chart I've ever seen in my life breaking out. The so. best-looking chart in your life. Yeah. Remember when he said the worst? That was that. What yeah. chart was that? Chart. That was with Lisa. We had a little oh, thing. Yeah, house little, remember that? Oh, we, we, the the worst-looking chart was it like ever. like Lululemon or something? No, no. It was a retail. Oh, we had the triangle of death. Remember triangle that chart death. pattern? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, coming up, the market is broken. That's the word from Jim Bianco, who says fundamentals are in need of repair despite today's rally. His take on UK gilts, the Fed, and more next. And some hope in the home builders that grew quietly holding up despite the market volatility. So can you build a foundation with these names? Stick around to find out. Fast Money be back, back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Markets getting off to a strong start to the week with all three major indices closing in the green. The Dow up more than 400 points is now up 10 percent from the lows of the month. The move comes even as Treasury yields continue to climb higher. The two-year yield back above four and a half percent today. What do we make of this rally, Dan? Well, listen, we've talked about this a little bit. We thought, and I think we all agreed about a month ago, that there's a really good chance that that Fed whisperer at the Wall Street Journal is going to float some article a week before the Fed meeting, and he did, about, Mm -hmm. like, the idea that the Fed might pause for their fourth consecutive 75 basis point hike when they do it, and maybe they pause or, like, at least take the foot off the pedal a little bit. Also, the comparison, and Guy's been making this very aptly, you know, from that June, mid-June meeting, that rally that we had into mid-August, what was it predicated on? Uh, Well, sentiment got really bad as far as the stock market was concerned. Right. And we knew that estimates were coming down into Q2 earnings. When they came out, they weren't as bad as expected. Sure, there was some one-off things. So we just kept on rallying until the realization, though, in August is like, no, things are not particularly good, only getting worse. And visibility is horrible, no matter what the Fed does. So to me, I think we could be setting up for that. We rallied 18% from those mid-June lows to the mid-August highs. We're about 8% higher right now. Guy, what do you think? 4,100 or something like yes, that? You know, that would be like 15, 16. And the vitriol on Twitter on the back of that is significant. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not bullish. If if anything from these levels to 4,100, and and yes, I guess in the short term, that's bullish. But long term, none of the problems that we've been talking about for a year now have been fixed by any stretch. But the biggest rallies take place in bear markets. And like it or not, we are in a bear market. I mean, a 50 instead of a 75 in December. That's not going to solve any of the worries, right? Alleviate any of the worries that anybody had. Uh, turning now to the big news across the pond, Rishi Sunak is set to be the next prime minister of the U.K. The news sending the U.K. gilts rallying this morning, but they've since given up gains. For more on this in the broader market, let's bring in Jim Bianco. He's the president and macro strategist at Bianco Research. Jim, great to have you with us. I feel like the comments that we, we were just making sort of applies to the situation as well in that, uh, you know, people may be relieved that uh, an ex-finance guy, uh, an ex-finance uh, secretary is, is now the prime minister. But the, the problems that the country faces, the U.K., that is, are still there and they're still very deep. They're not fixed at all. Oh, that's right. Just because he knows how to use Excel and there's some Twitter feeds of him doing exactly that doesn't mean <clears throat> that the budget problems are going to be fixed in the U.K. They still have a fundamental problem of high inflation low growth, big bills coming for energy, and how they're going to try and solve that because they've promised that there would be a subsidy for for all of that energy cost that everybody's going to bear this winter. And the mini budget that 
uh, Prime Minister Trust put out failed. So now we're back to square one. How are you going to fix these problems? And we'll see what he comes up with. Yeah, uh, it sounds like, and I don't mean to force a trading cap on you, Jim, but any any gains that were made off the back of this news or going into this news uh, sh should be short-lived. Uh, <clears throat> I think that that's right. Also, remember that the UK gilts market, the Bank of England has 230 years of data on it. Now, the reason I bring that up is what we've seen in the last three or four weeks stands out in 230 years of data. We've not seen this kind of volatility in this market. Today was a quiet day. It fell 30 basis points. Any other time, that would have been a holy cow kind of moment for the, this market. But now it's just Monday is the way it's been going. And that doesn't mean because it fell in yield as opposed to rose 30 basis points that somehow the problem is fixed. It's just as dysfunctional when you see falls in yield that much as you do see in rise in yields. So the message the market is saying is we're not healthy. We're not getting better yet. We still need to see what your budget's going to be. Are you going to require a massive amount of borrowing? And that remains to be seen. Hey, Jim, it's Jeff Mills. So I just want to switch gears a little bit and talk about rates here in the U.S. You know, I keep waiting for longer term yields to peak. You know, that gravitational pull from slower economic growth, presumably an impending recession. You know, long term rates tend to fall in those environments. So do you see that happening this time around? And what do you think it's going to take for that long end to stop rising? Well, first of all, let's put this in context. The long end, the 10-year yield is up 12 consecutive weeks. We've got data going back to 1941. This ties the all-time record with 1984 and 1956. The yield rise, weekly yield rise, started in July, late July, and the stock market, the S&P, is down 11% over the same period. There's been no indication that this yield rise is going to stop, and that's because it's a situation where good news is bad news. As we continue to see the fall in the unemployment claims, as we continue to see strong economic numbers, as we continue to see decent earnings, the bond market keeps concluding, OK, we can go higher and we can go higher and we can go higher. So ultimately, I think it's going to take something like some bad economic data, a plunge in the market or something to stop this rise in yields, because it's been extraordinary. Like I said, you got, it was actually July 29th is the last weekly t weekly week that we saw yields fall from Monday through Friday. Um, a nine-week streak of higher 10-year yields going back into the 1987 crash. You don't just lightly, Jim, throw toss in the mention of the 1987 crash and some notes <laughs> unless you're trying to actually make some kind of point, are you? Yeah, if, if you look back, we're in week 12. If you look back at every time the 10-year yield has been up nine consecutive weeks or more, has been a terrible time to own stocks. You've lost money in every single one of those, except for one in 1979, when you made a little bit of money in a 14% inflation environment. So on a real basis, you still lost money. And that includes the 1987 crash. In other words, what it says is the stock market can't handle rates keep going higher. Right. They either need the Fed to pivot and tell Dan that the, the proper term is stepped down from 75 to 50. Now he could be a, a official Fed watcher now that he knows that term. And that we need, they either need that or something else like bad economic data or the stock market to stop this yield rise. Otherwise, it's just not going to stop. Right. Jim, thank you. Good to see you. Jim thank Bianco. You. Jeff Mills, what are, what are your thoughts about that? that neat little stat. I know you like numbers, you like data, um, but there's a difference in terms of the rise 
where we were and where we are now versus those other periods where we started from a much higher base and went to, you know, in some cases, double digits in terms of the interest no, rates? That, that's true. But I, I think it's so easy to just to try to outsmart ourselves here. And I think I think we just need to keep it very simple. Guy sort of alluded to it that nothing has changed that much. Inflation is too high. The labor market is too tight. The Fed is going to keep tightening, so rates are rising. The curve is inverted. We got PMI data today in the U.S. that looked horrible. Both services and manufacturing were in contraction territory. We're still in a downtrend in the S&P 500. I think less than a quarter of stocks are above their 200-day moving <coughs> average. So, listen, we, we will get bear market rallies. That is the rule, not the exception. But none of these really critical elements have changed. So keep it simple, and I think that's going to be the driving force here. All right, coming up. Home sweet surprise, home building stocks doing something special the last couple months. What the general has to say about the group next, plus Microsoft gearing up to report after the bell tomorrow. So will this one excel when results cross? The outlook on that one ahead, very clever. And don't miss CNBC's 2022 online work summit, a big two-day event kicking off tomorrow, bringing together the top names in business, policy, banking, and more. <laughs> Register at CNBCEvents.com or scan the code on your screen. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's been a rough ride for the home builders, but you may be surprised to find out that the sector has been quietly beating the S&P over the last six months, and the sector might not be done. Jeff, you've been watching this one. Yeah, I took a look today, and obviously it's hard to really pound the table on home builders, just given the setup for housing seems so terrible, but it, it is really interesting. You go back to the relative lows in April for home builders. And like you said, they've outperformed by about 8%. And during that time, you've had rates, look at the 10-year from 2.6 to wherever we ended today, four and a quarter or so. So you would think that would be an unusual circumstance to see that kind of move in rates and then home builders relatively outperform. So we've talked about this in the past, but you have valuations that are very depressed. And then this history that home builders do the bulk of their underperforming prior to actual recession period. So even go back to 2008, I think we have a chart on this. I think they actually marginally outperformed, or at least they were flat uh, to the S&P 500 during the actual recession in 2008. So again, hard to pound the table on it, but very interesting price action in the face of moves in the bond market that you might think would be very difficult for home builders. So certainly worth thinking about here uh, as I think we're approaching potentially an actual economic recession. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, these stocks, DHIs, for example, trading sideways for a while, there is another leg lower. By the way, Melms, it just dawned on me as I'm sitting here looking at uh, the very handsome Jeff Mills. In the summer of 1983, Tom Cruise was in a great movie. You might be remember Risky Business. He played Joel Goodson. And if you look at that shot right there, please put that single shot of Jeff Mills. That is the foyer, if you recall, that Tom Cruise sang the song in his tidy whities across that thing. That is the same shot. I actually encourage Jeff Mills to reenact that after the show tonight. Maybe put Maybe that on the Maybe he does that all the time. Maybe he does that every night. Maybe it's a regular thing in the Mills household. You never know. Hope. And listen, I wasn't even born in 1983, so oh. I never saw it. Oh! <laughs> nice dig. <laughs> Wow, there's nowhere to go from there. No, it's not, but you know I'm right. And the people on the Twitterverse will know. I am telling you, that is it. I can see Tom, who happens to be a fan of Fast Money, by the way, I'm sure watching this right now saying, holy bleep, that's the foyer that I danced across in the movie. I'm sure he is. Yeah. Uh, coming up, we'll let you know if he does. Uh, coming up, big tech on deck. We've got a huge week of results ahead. Should you brace for impact or surprise to the upside? We'll hit the options market for a look at what's to come. Stick around. More Fast Money in two. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Huge slate of tech earnings this week. Alphabet, Microsoft, Meta, Apple, Amazon, all in the calendar. And one of these names is seeing a lot of bullish options activity. Mike Coe's got the action. Hey, Mike. Hi. So we're taking a look at Microsoft. Microsoft options right now implying a move of about 5.4% by the end of the week. That's higher than the 3.9% that the company has averaged over the last eight reported quarters. Bullish bets edged out bearish bets today. The most active options were the weekly 250 calls. We saw over 11,000 of those trading for $4.34 a contract. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the stock is going to rally through that 250 strike price, betting that the results of earnings are probably going to be to the positive side. We also saw a lot of activity in the 260 strike calls and the 245s as well. Yeah. Dan, what do you think about Microsoft into earnings? Interesting. Okay, we've been talking about the currency effect that Microsoft has for a very long time. We've been waiting for them to kind of signal any sort of weakness as far as enterprise. I just don't think currency is going to be the thing that this stock trades on after this. It really is going to be what they have to say about cloud growth. Is it still decelerating the way it did last quarter? And then what are all of these technology job cuts? How do they affect their sales or the licenses of the seats that they sell on a recurring basis. So to me, that's going to be the story there. I mean, if you think that there's going to be a recession, there's going to be higher unemployment, how many more licenses do you need? That's exactly right. And last quarter, if you remember, I know you do, Microsoft when they reported stock was trading 256, reported earnings traded down to 242. They made comments about not seeing demand destruction. Next thing you know, two and a half, three weeks later, it's $298 stock. The setup is extraordinarily similar here. I do think they may speak to demand destruction. So I actually am inclined to take the other side of those calls that Mike just talked about. By the way, OA, 530 Fridays. Love it. Oh, you just said that. Mike, thank you. We'll see you on Friday, which is the full show, 530 p.m. Eastern time, OA. Coming up, final trades. I'm going to go back to healthcare and back to Merck. It is a great chart, and I still think the valuation is really reasonable after the new all-time high. Uh, it's just a good stock for this market. Chairwoman. Yes. Well, interesting on the heels of Merck, which I do like and do own. I actually I own some Lilly, but I think the trade now is to sell some upside calls. The November 360, the stock has just gone hyperbolic, parabolic, I guess both, whatever. Sell some upside calls. Dan. Yeah, Chinese stocks. I think we're going to look back in a couple months and think this was a capitulation, at least near term. Guys. It is wonderful to have you back. Great to yes. be back. <laughs> no, seriously. You're our Sergeant Hulk, as we've mentioned a number of times. Amgen Melms. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.